In a letter he wrote over 200 years ago, freshly arrived in New York City from Scotland, one of my great-great-great-grandfathers promised that he would never marry a woman for her money. He would never marry a woman who practiced a different religion. And he also promised he would never marry a widow. And I think it's time that I said thank you on behalf of the 450 people who would never have existed had he not broken at least one of those promises. Welcome to Relative Strangers, a podcast all about the descendants of one couple, both born into well-to-do families in New York City in the 1820s, and my efforts to bring them all together in person for the first time in June of 2024. My name is Taylor Molly, and I'm a poet, amateur genealogist, connector, and if I'm being honest, a little bit of a disruptor. I tend to speak the quiet part out loud as beautifully as I can. As you know, if you've heard the previous episodes, our original plan to meet in the Adirondack Mountains next summer got abruptly canceled when two of my cousins, whom I've never met, got wind of this podcast and convinced the club that was going to host us to revoke our invitation. I actually think they did us a favor, but I won't mention their names on this podcast unless they'd like to come on as my guest on some future episode. So now I'm using the remaining episodes to apprise the family and the world of the progress in creating a new plan. And in the process, I want to tell some stories about my ancestors and what life might have been like for them. This is episode four, one skeleton at a time. Relative Strangers is sponsored by FamilyTreeChart.com, and you'll hear me sing their praises in the middle of this episode. All right, here's the show. I am happy to report that cousin Robert Easton, who was my guest on the last episode, finally heard back from the Metropolitan Museum of Art about hosting a welcome cocktail reception for the family to kick off our reunion next summer. You'll remember that we had decided the Met would be the perfect place to start since the man at the center of this project, John Taylor Johnston, our great-great-grandfather, was one of the founders of the museum and served as its first president. The Met told Cousin Robert that they would be happy to rent us the entire atrium that houses the Egyptian Temple of Dendur for the family discount rate of $100,000. Actually, that's not true. There is no family discount rate. Or if there is, it would have been applied later by the membership department, and it might be something like $100 off. So there's nothing to report yet, but we haven't given up hope that we might start our reunion at the museum that our great-great-grandfather helped to found. I say family reunion, but the truth is 90% of those likely to attend this event, if I can pull it off at all, have never met one another. Because listen, John Taylor Johnston, 
and Francis Collis were both dead by the end of 1893, so none of their descendants today ever met them. In fact, no one alive today has even met any of their children, with one exception. Emily Johnston, born in 1851, the oldest of the Johnston children, the Marcia Brady of the family, has so many descendants today and was so vibrant herself, outliving all of her younger siblings, that the oldest of my third cousins alive today, and there's a handful born in the 1930s and one born in 1929, might have sat on their great-grandmother's lap before she died in her early 90s. But I sincerely doubt that Emily Johnston DeForest, my great-great-aunt, whispered into the ear of any of those third cousins of mine, if or when you gather as a family 82 years from now, do be sure to invite all the unborn descendants of my dead brother and two sisters as well. No one really notices this, but as the elders of your family die off, family reunions automatically refocus themselves around the members of the next oldest generation that are readily at hand. It makes sense in the abstract, but there's a lot of unwitting excision that happens over the decades. Think of it this way. At the very first family reunions you attended, you were one of the youngest, and you probably fidgeted in the front row of the family photo with grass stains on your nice clothes next to a handful of first or second young cousins. 40 years later, finds you standing in the back row of a similar photo, maybe taken in front of the same family house, wondering who will drive your father and his tipsy sisters home after the photo is taken. And after yet another 40 years, if you're still alive, you'll find yourself at the center of the photo, sitting next to whichever of your siblings or their spouses are still alive, if not aware or awake. And if at that moment you start to wonder out loud where all your little first and second cousins are, where are the grass stains on your sailor suit, someone will take your champagne away and one of your children will drive you home. There is simply not enough room in the present to maintain the same structure of the family as it existed in the past. Let me be blunt in a way that only a few of my cousins will appreciate. A sterling silver punch bowl engraved with the names of all your children and grandchildren and the dates that they were christened is a wonderful artifact that will serve to bring the whole family together, but only for a few decades. Because after you die, that beautiful christening bowl will end up in the hands of one of those grandchildren. And assuming they don't send it to auction or pack it away in a box to be forgotten, assuming they continue the diligent work of carrying on the tradition, which is probably more painstaking and expensive than anyone realizes, the newest names engraved into the bowl will be their descendants and no one else's. 
so it may still serve to bring the family together, it just won't be the same family as before, which may cause their most calculating cousins to quip, hey, why did Nana's bowl end up with you? And that's a perfect segue to the theme of this episode, which is broken promises and family secrets, and why my wife Rachel says that I have a real aptitude for bringing the family together one skeleton at a time. Every family has secrets. And when I started this project in late 2021, I was very cavalier about spilling them. Remember I said I have a penchant for saying the quiet part out loud? I thought, who cares if the world finally finds out this scandal from 80 years ago? But I quickly realized something about family secrets, which in turn prompted me to write a poem that I'll read in a moment, though you may not be able to tell when I have started. Please let this episode not be the next one that blows up in my face. Such is the nature of having a poet as a tour guide. You never know if the story you are being told is truthful or just riveting. Actually, that's not quite true. I have no problem augmenting the facts with my imagination where facts end, poems can continue to dream. But because I'm talking about real people to whom I am related, even though I've never met them, my relative strangers, I always want you to know precisely when the poet has hijacked the narrative. Because some family secrets from 1950 were kept from the world, while all the others just from other sides of the family. Like all those who drank themselves to death, undone by the war is what we whispered. Or those curious few who remained unmarried and lived for many years with nothing but a lovely roommate. Whose womb, barren? Which wastrel lost the family fortune? Whose mother's father was probably born a Jew? who shook with palsy the shame of the family, arrested weakly, lurching through the Tony Square, who killed himself and at whose urging, who married below our class, whose simple child should best be left forgotten, either dead at four or shut away for sixty noiseless years, whose pistol discharged accidentally, who fired the footman over what missing gemstone, who hit his head and died alone in the snow, who found the Irish servant girl dead a month before she began to show. That was an as-yet-unpublished poem of mine titled Some Family Secrets from 1950. And every scandal I mentioned in it is either based on some whispered rumor that I've heard about our family or else is completely fabricated by me just to dial up the drama. I changed one word in the poem at the end. I made the murdered pregnant housemaid Irish when in the poem I originally wrote, Finnish. I know from scouring old census records in our family that a lot of domestic workers back in the day came from Finland. But you wouldn't have been able to tell when I said Finnish that the word is spelled with a capital F. 
hence the change. Incidentally, that scandal is completely made up. I have absolutely no reason to believe that one of my male ancestors assaulted one of the housemaids in his parents' employ, got her pregnant, and then smothered her with a pillow in her bed when she threatened to expose his craven iniquity. That is all poetry, all drama. There are a couple other secrets in my family I recently uncovered that never made it into that poem. But just like all the others, not everyone is as eager to talk about them as I am. The two I unearthed both involve literal skeletons, which is why my wife Rachel said, I have a real knack for bringing the family together one skeleton at a time, which is to say, I'll have to do a little more research and get specific permission before I say anything more on either of those. When we return, I'll talk about John Taylor Johnston's father, the promises he made about never marrying a rich woman, a widow, or someone who practiced a different religion, and how I wouldn't be here unless he had broken at least one of those promises. Relative Strangers is sponsored by one company, FamilyTreeChart.com, and they are how I keep all the members of my family straight. If you're like most people and you want to go any further back than your grandparents, you got to either look in your files or through some emails that one crazy cousin is always sending you saying, here's another story about our ancestors. P.S. I'm that crazy cousin. If you want to see clearly the names of the people you come from, when they lived, and where they were born, you have to have a place where you keep that information in a way that it can be displayed. And that is not a series of three ring binders where each diagram continues either 10 pages before or 10 pages after. Family Tree Chart is where you can import, adjust, edit, add, and finally print that info. Many of my cousins have a copy of the descendancy chart that I made for this project, and I created that digital file on FamilyTreeChart.com. Go poke around their website, and if you want to start building a chart of your own, use the promo code METROPOLITAN to get 10% off your first order. This is Relative Strangers. I'm Taylor Molly, and I try to make it clear in every episode that the couple at the center of this project is John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis. All of my relative strangers are descendants of those two. But for this next bit, we need to go one generation further back to John Taylor Johnston's parents, both of whom were immigrants from Scotland. His father, whose name was John Borman Johnston, arrived in New York City in 1804 at the age of 23. He had very little money, but he was good at math and he had decent handwriting, so he worked as a clerk in various import shops, mostly run by other Scottish immigrants. And that's how he met his future wife, Margaret Taylor. Margaret was technically also a Scottish immigrant, but she had been brought over by her father almost 20 years earlier at the age of two. 
So New York City, right after the American Revolution, but before the Constitution, was all she remembered of her childhood. And do you know what her secret was? She had been married before and had a little girl. And then, in less than two years' time, her husband and baby girl died. So John Taylor Johnston, who was born in 1820, had a half-sister who was born nine years earlier and died at the age of two. During the War of 1812, Margaret, now a 28-year-old, newly childless widow, had to move back in with her father and his new wife and watch as her younger sisters all got married and moved away and her younger brothers all went off to sea. I'll have to devote an entire future episode to John Taylor Johnston's maternal grandfather, John Taylor, who was apparently so famous for increasing the price of everything he sold by 60% that his nickname was Old 60%. And I like to pretend to say it in his voice, even though it's probably more of an Irish accent, but I don't really care. Old 60%. And talk about secrets the family would probably rather I not reveal. John Taylor owned an enslaved person in New York City, even after 1799, when the Gradual Emancipation Act of New York State, which was a truly feckless piece of legislation if there ever was one, began the slow process of making slavery illegal. I will definitely tell you more about that enslaved man, whose name, by the way, was Anthony Jay. So John Johnston married a widow, which he vowed he never would do. And I would not be here today, nor would any of my 450 relative strangers, if he had not. And you know what his reason was for not wanting to be married to a widow? He didn't want to be compared to another man, which I find so cringeworthy because there's a small-minded part of my male brain that totally understands this, and I'm a widower, which makes my feelings even more reprehensible. But to put a positive spin on things, Margaret must have been so special that she made John Johnston see her potential through her gloomy brokenness. And yet she was reluctant to marry again. And I know this because I have read excerpts of her journal. Here are three entries. June 8th, 1817. Why should I hesitate? He is a professor of religion, an excellent character, an agreeable person, and, if I credit his word, loves me the way I have often wished to be loved. June 9th. Still in perplexity, what would I not give for a kind, indulgent mother in whose breast I could pour my troubles? Her, her mother died in 1797, and John Taylor, her father, got married to a series of other women. I do not dare speak to father. If I should be blessed with children again, let me teach them to love me as well as fear me. That says so much right there. Last one, June 10th. Last night, I had an interesting conversation with J.J. J. John Johnston. 
I hope I have not done wrong, but I led him to believe that if father has no objections to our union, I would have none either. It's a shame I don't know more about Margaret's first marriage and her child who died, but she ripped out all the pages in her diary that were from that period of her life. Yet more family secrets. Perhaps she didn't want her fragile husband to read of her first love and feel himself lesser in comparison. Margaret lived a long life, had four more children, one of whom was John Taylor Johnston, and was very close with her granddaughter, Emily Johnston, who married Robert DeForest. She even got to meet all of Emily's children and sung them Scottish lullabies, which nobody knew she remembered. She died in Number 7 Washington Square North, a townhouse John Johnston built, which stayed in the family for almost a hundred years before being purchased by New York University. She's buried in the Johnston Mausoleum in the Greenwood Cemetery, and I always trace the letters of her gravestone when I see it because I owe my existence to her ability to pick up the pieces of her life and risk love again. In future episodes of Relative Strangers, especially when I have guests on, which I want to do more of, I will ask if anyone like me feels they inherited her heartbreak or her resilience. What about the broken promise to which we owe our existence? Do any of my distant cousins ever feel as if they are living a life born of a broken promise? What about the pages torn from her journal? Who else feels sometimes as though they are the product of a second chance at love? Please follow me on Instagram at Relative Strangers Podcast, where I try to be a little less dramatic and where currently you can see a photo of a beautiful armchair that was donated to the Met by John Taylor Johnston. <laughs>